This is Africa Digest. A very good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyani. I'm driving the show with Onele Nzinzi, Amanda Machaga and Musabudi Makura. Coming up this hour of Africa Digest, three people have died and dozens others injured during protest against Kenya's Electoral Commission. Africa has presented its common position on humanitarian issues at the World Humanitarian Summit in Turkey in economics leaders from the group of seven advanced economies to examine potential risks to the global economy and in sport, CAF Champions League draw yields some interesting match-ups. All those stories and more coming up here on Africa Digest. Let's get the news first, though. Here's Onele. Thank you, Asanda. Human remains retrieved from the crashed Egypt air flight suggest that there was an explosion on board the plane. Although no traces of explosives have been detected, an Egyptian forensic official and investigation sources say this is based on the size of the remains, with the biggest part being the size of a pump. French investigators say the plane sent a series of warnings indicating that smoke hadn't been detected on board, as well as other possible computer faults shortly before it disappeared. A Catholic nun in Kenya's Nakuru County has been arrested for blocking the immunization of at least 700 pupils against measles and rubella. However, Daily Nation reported that five Catholic-sponsored schools in Nakuru blocked the immunization drive contrary to the Public Health Act. A Catholic nun who was the head teacher at one of the schools was arrested following complaints by the parents that she had blocked their pupils from accessing the jab. The immunization campaign was launched by the Kenyan government on Monday last week and was set to end this Tuesday. Zimbabweans are urging their president, Robert Mugabe, who's 92, to step down, giving the reason that he would have more time to take care of his newly born grandson. A number of Zimbabweans urged Mugabe to step aside in order to make way for upcoming leaders, whom they say could lead the country to economic improvement. The veteran leader was recently endorsed by his party to run as the party's presidential candidate in the upcoming 2018 elections. However, Mugabe in March March stated that he would only stand for re-election in 2018 if he was in good health. Africa has presented its common position on humanitarian issues at the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul, Turkey. The summit began on Monday and ends this Tuesday. Africa's position is geared towards a change in the global humanitarian architecture on the basis of a new spirit of solidarity, cooperation and mutual accountability in humanitarian action. African Union Commission Deputy Chairperson, the leader of the African delegation at the summit, Dr. Erastus Mchemwa. 
Africa's common position is one, that Africa will be taking self-commitment. Commit African state for two things. One, to provide leadership. Because as you know, when there is a crisis of humanitarian need, you find there are many actors. And unless you find one lead body, there can be confusion and sometimes contradictions on the ground on how and who is providing what assistance and also getting the right assistance, reaching the right people in the right way. The second commitment is for Africa to also create a humanitarian space. Meaning, as a, as a state, they have the obligation because after all, the states have the obligation for life of the people and the welfare of the people. And finally, a top global wildlife activist says South Africa needs to focus on organized crime in its battle against rhino poaching. The head of the Eagle Network, Ofi Drory, says he believes the discussion on rhino poaching in South Africa is misdirected and should rather be targeting organized crime. He's made the comments during a discussion on illegal rhino hunt trade hosted by the UN Environment Assembly in Nairobi, Kenya. That's the problem with us in South Africa. The discussion is geared very comfortably towards the poachers. But this is not your problem. Organized crime, real criminal syndicates. The poachers are just small foot soldiers of organized crime. Until you deal with organized crime, like a lot of other countries, but probably far more because of the economical advantage of being based in South Africa. Channel Africa News, I'm Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon if you've just joined us here on Channel Africa. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyani. We just got a news bulletin there from Onele Nzinsi, thanks to her. Let's get to the business of the day. Three people have died and dozens others sustained multiple injuries in Western Kenyan following protests against Kenya's Electoral Commission, which took place in several cities on Monday. In Nairobi, riot police continue to form a line around the Commission headquarters to deter the latest in what has become weekly protests. Authorities say the demonstrations are illegal. The protesters, most of whom are supporters of the opposition Cord coalition, say the IEBC must be disbanded ahead of next year's national elections. More from senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in Nairobi, Kenya, Dr. Emmanuel Kisiangani. The opposition, the Coalition for Reforms and Democracy, think they are numbering inadequacies with the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission. Going back to the last election, when there were technological challenges around registration and accounting. And subsequently, there have been also been allegations that the procurement process for um, the tools for the last elections um, entailed corruption. And the counterparts uh, whom the IEBC procured from in the UK have actually been jailed for that reason. So the opposition have been arguing that given that scenario, that the IEBC, that is the Independent Election Boundaries Commission, therefore are um, are not in a position to oversee a fair, a free and fair election. And they have been urging it to be disbanded. Um, they argue that it's actually the last election that it severed the current ruling party. So that, that, is, that underpins uh, the claims by the opposition against the IEBC. Mm. Now, do the protesters have a valid reason in your view, and is there really um, a need for this uh, call? 
I think it depends uh, where you stand, because while that is the claim of the opposition, you have those on the side of government arguing that there's a legal process uh, through which the IDC can be dismantled. Or, but the challenge is that the opposition realizes they do not have the majority in parliament. The process has to go through parliament uh, for the IDC to be dismantled. They realize that that is a difficult option for them. So that is why they have opted for demonstrations, because they think that they can put pressure on the IDC commissioners to actually resign. So I, I'm saying it depends on where you stand, because if you are in the opposition, then you think uh, the legal dimension may actually not realize the objectives, because you are the minority in parliament, you'll be over, outvoted. But then there's also the legal dimension of the debate, and the opposition are arguing that no, uh, the debate is now beyond legal, it's now about moral and ethical considerations. And uh, when we look at uh, the implications uh, that these protests have on the country um, ahead of these elections, um, uh, tell us what some of those uh, major implications are. It has uh, reached a very worrying level, um, regardless of what will happen, uh, because the commissioners of the electoral body are insisting that they will not vacate office. They're saying that um, the legal process needs to be followed. But the problem is that we only have about slightly over a year uh, to the next election. So the predicament is that um, the atmosphere is actually getting charged here. And if uh, the IBC stick to their guns and remain in office and then in the next election, the risk is that any uh, person claiming, uh, especially from the opposition, claiming that, look, they are malpractices here, can actually ignite the country because then the opposition will say, this is what we were arguing against. So it has come uh, to bear. So uh, I'm just saying that we are in a very precarious position if uh, the IDC gets stuck uh, on their legal arguments and actually goes ahead to decide over an election where you have literally half of the country uh, who supports the opposition uh, thinking that they could not uh, um, oversee a, a fair and fair election. So uh, overall, I'm just saying that the situation even right now is, is developing um, some apprehension affecting business and also affecting, uh, you know, uh, country's image. But going forward, if the IBC gets stuck, then I'm very worried uh, given uh, what is going on in the ICC. Mm. Mm. Uh, it did to some of the cases here. We're quite worried if the situation continues like that. We, everyone is apprehensive that there could be violence you know, during the next election. That was Dr. Emmanuel Kisiangani, senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in Nairobi, Kenya. On the line, they're talking to Zukona Miso. The United Nations Mine Action Service has praised both the Democratic Republic of Congo and its partners for efforts in fighting anti-personnel landmines in that country. The serious problem remains how to secure arms, ammunitions and other explosives, especially in the eastern DRC, where several areas have been facing conflicts for long. Januel Bamwezwe reports from Kinshasa. The Democratic Republic of Congo is no more highly contaminated by anti-personal landmines thanks to significant efforts both this country's government and its partners are doing in that way. That's indeed what the UN Mine Action Service, well known as UN Mastold Channel Africa here in Kinshasa, although the organization expressed some worries about the situation, especially in the eastern DRC, where securing arms, ammunition and other explosives remains a serious problem. 
The Congolese government has engaged itself in clearing all known contaminated areas before 2021, and the UN mass is really optimistic when it comes to achieving this. Bruno Buchari is the UN mass technical coordinator. The DRC has been uh, fighting against uh, the contamination through landmines for years. Uh, DRC is a government that is signatory from uh, the Ottawa Treaty and uh, has engaged himself to succeed in uh, achieving the clearance of all known contaminated uh, areas until 2021. And currently, all efforts are being made through a national capacity an international support to achieve this goal. On the contrary of some other country in Africa, you cannot say that uh, DRC is highly contaminated by antipersonal landmines, but this country has a real problem with explosive remnants of war due to the numerous conflicts that uh, the country has experienced since more than 30 years now. The most dangerous provinces uh, for civilian population, where they are the most exposed to, to the risk of uh, explosive remnant of war. It's where uh, conflict just has uh, taken place or uh, are currently taken place. Most of the Congolese national police staff do not have enough or any required capacity to manage arms in a secured way and this exposes people to the consequences of hundreds of arms available here and there. Although so many things have been done and the UN Mine Action Service is satisfied of the work that has been done, the organization believes there is still a lot to be done in this country. Once more, the UN Mass Technical Coordinator Bruno Butchery explains. A mine, a mortar, a grenade, it never dies. It stays on site and whatever people come to touch it, they will be injured or killed by it. There's still a lot to be done, but uh, I was here eight years ago. Uh, at this time, the United Nations led the coordination of uh, mine action and uh, explosive remnant of wars uh, action. And now there is a national capacity that is uh, coherent and that is improving uh, his skill and that is about to be able to manage the issue on itself. So you could say I'm satisfied. The UN Mass has recently trained about 80 police officers from both here in Kinshasa and Goma. The arms and ammunition management training was funded by the Japanese government. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzaka 
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Bringing you the latest news from around the continent. This is Africa Digest. Uh, Good afternoon if you've just joined us. The time now is 7.15 Central African. I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. With 2016 being a jubilee year for Channel Africa as it marks its 50th anniversary, the station has planned a number of activities to celebrate this milestone. These include the drive, which started in the beginning of this month, to rebroadcast high-profile shows that were first aired in the 1990s and beyond. A big commemorative event coinciding with Africa Week will also be held in Yeovil, Johannesburg this Saturday, with the station having an outside broadcast at the venue. Jane Rabutata reports. Channel Africa was formed back in the day from a conglomeration of two entities, Radio RSA, which was the propaganda station of the apartheid government, which began in 1966, as well as Global News Services, which came into being in 1988, an organization supplying international news to the South African Broadcasting Corporation and syndicating news feeds and programs to countries around the world. Both entities were financed by government and shared the vision of being the voice of South Africa. When change in the country began to take shape, it was proposed in a brainstorming meeting that the two entities which had been joined together change into a single entity that could carry on in the future despite the political situation in South Africa. This saw the introduction of Channel Africa under the Department of Foreign Affairs with the vision of telling Africa about Africa. The reorganization of the entity saw it change from a mainly program-orientated station to a news and information station. The listener base was cut from a global to Africa and languages were changed to fit the new listenership. Reaching its listeners via three platforms, shortwave, satellite and the internet, the station currently broadcasts in six languages, English, Kiswahili, Silozi, Chinyanja, French and Portuguese. Under the leadership of the current general manager, Soli Pitwe, Channel Africa has taken a different direction and has become more relevant in the news biz. This with the contribution of its dedicated reporters and producers with tons of experience in the broadcast world, bringing together expertise from different countries. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. An honors graduate at the U.S. Johnson C. Smith University has launched an international empowerment campaign which has been presented at several schools and universities in South Africa. Born in South Africa, Mpumino Biva was part of the inaugural class of the National Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls, which paved way for her to study in the U.S. In her campaign titled Share Your Story, Inspiring Courage, She motivates fellow students to use education to empower themselves, as she did following the loss of her mother to HIV-AIDS at the age of nine. Currently earning a master's degree in strategic communication from High Point University, also in the U.S., Nobiva hopes that she will one day share her story at the United Nations or the African Union. 
Share Your Story was launched last year while I was in Cape Town. I had been working with an organization called Relay Bracelet, and I worked as their sales account executive, but also as their ambassador for their aid division. And they they support over 65 different causes, you know, going from Goodbye Malaria to Cancer Initiative. And I wanted to engage with what they do, but from my own personal perspective. So Share Your Story is inspired by my own story growing up as an AIDS orphan in poverty and how my mother shared her story with me before she died and how that made such a great difference in my life. And South Africa has the highest prevalence of HIV and AIDS to the whole world. And the most impacted demographics are young people between the ages of 16 and 24, and women are the most at risk. And so I launched Share Your Story with hope that in my sharing my own story, I would inspire women across the world, but especially in South Africa, to own their truth and and share their stories in a, in a way that will inspire courage. You know, I, I had the concern that perhaps, for instance, with, with KZN having the highest prevalence, for instance, in the country, my question was, is it possible that, for instance, the women in that area are making the same mistakes, are repeating the same mistakes, you know? Is it possible that you have a 16-year-old who's just repeated a mistake that was committed by a 36-year-old woman? The chances are high because we're still not in a society that has allowed us to have these bases that give us full safety to disclose where our wounds openly and learn to engage and grow from one another. That that was the inspiration. As a former student yeah. of the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls in South Africa, elaborate more on the role this academy played in getting you to the U.S. I was fortunate in that um, after studying at the academy, we had a very good career center that had college advisors that had information regarding the United States. And the OLED Foundation takes care of, like, for instance, if you graduate from the academy and you get a full ride scholarship, you have good merit scholarship and leadership qualities and you qualify the screening process, then you will have a support that will support the scholarship deal that you're on. And so when I graduated myself in Tandor, we got full ride Duke Endowment scholarships to attend University of Johnson C. Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so that made it easy for us to qualify for other forms of support to keep us sustained while in the United States. So I'd say it played a big part. It definitely made it more of a possibility. It made it more accessible. And even once I had gotten a scholarship, I still had a form of support that would qualify me to be a student who's had like a successful academic career for the past four years in tertiary level. You have done exceptionally well in your studies and continuing to do so against all odds. Thank you. What would you yes, say ma'am. what would you say this speaks to? Speaks to what happens when everybody shows up, you know. I think the outcome of my education is a lesson from literally the quality of education, the investments made into a girl child, the opportunities presented to a girl child. I think this is what happens when everybody takes a level of accountability for our society, takes a level of accountability to our education and the access we have as girls, especially as African girls, as poor people, as orphans. This is what happens when you give somebody a fair chance, you know, a chance where they can prove themselves and compete at a fair pace with other students who are perhaps a little more supported or come from better socioeconomic circumstances, you know. I think that this is what happens when you take a chance and you invest in the child who might not be the most popular or most attractive candidate simply because of where they come from or the level of poverty they've endured or the fact that, for instance, I'm one of the very few people to graduate
graduate in my family just with a metric and then to go on to tertiary school and then to go on to graduating from the United States. If somebody had said, well, this has never happened, it's never been proven in her lineage, she'll not take her, then I would have missed out on a tremendous opportunity to not only prove myself to myself, which is important for girl children, especially on the African continent, but to also set the bar and set a precedent for, for my family, you know, people who, who have been denied access to an arguable extent. And now that I've been able to push boundaries and stretch myself through my academic career, they too are now inspired to have the same goals, if not achieve even more than I've achieved, which I think is a great thing. What message would you share to a young girl who is in the same situation you once faced? It's just to believe that it is possible to live a life that is greater and larger than yourself. That's Mpumi Nobiva, graduate of the U.S. Johnson C. Smith University, talking to Nosi Lezuma. A new policy paper, No More Excuses, jointly released by the UNESCO Global Education Monitoring Report and United Nations High Commission on Refugees, reveals new data showing that refugee children are five times more likely to be out of school than others. The report calls for countries and their humanitarian and development partners to urgently ensure that those forcibly displaced are included in national education plans and to collect better data to monitor their education status and progress. More from Aaron Benavar the director of the GEM report. There's been a huge increase in the number of families, individuals, and children that have been forcibly displaced from their homes uh, in the last year. The estimate is that there are 60 million people that were forcibly displaced in in 2015. This is the highest number since uh, World War II. And a large number of these people are refugees who have crossed uh, the the borders of the country uh, where they lived, and they find themselves in very uh, precarious and often very difficult situations trying to survive. Some of them uh, end up in camps that are uh, organized and maintained by the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Refugees, and we estimate that there is approximately... 15 million of such individuals that are under the review of the UNHCR. Um, And about 60% of these uh, are children, especially in various parts of Africa like Egypt, Niger, South Sudan, and Uganda. And so what we tried to do in this report was to find out approximately what percentage of the refugee children in camps have access to schooling, either at the primary level or at the secondary level. And based on our analysis, we arrived at the conclusion that uh, only half of the primary school-age refugee children have access to school, and uh, only one-quarter of the adolescents have access to secondary school. So a large percentage of them are out of school, And in fact, if you compare these out-of-school numbers with non-refugee children, it's about five times higher to a non-refugee. In other words, there's out-of-school children in many parts of the world, but uh, refugee children, their uh, inability to access education is uh, extremely high. So these are some of the key findings that the report talks about. The situation indeed is uh, very difficult in Africa. What we also did in this report was to specifically look at you know, the situation in different African countries and different parts of the African countries, 
where refugees have found themselves. And here, the situation can vary from one country to another. So, for example, in Egypt or in South Sudan, the enrollment rates of the refugee children are relatively high. The same is true in Rwanda. But if you look at places like Kenya, Chad, and Sudan, then access to education uh, is considerably lower. So this is another way of saying that, uh, you know, there there's many instances of displacement in Africa, but different countries, together with the support of international agencies, have been able to address uh, these issues, sometimes more effectively, sometimes less so. I would imagine that women and girls are often the most marginalized in, in such instances and being the worst affected amongst refugees. Is this the case? Yes. Both there's a large numbers of women and children who are in the refugee situations. Often their situations are enormously precarious because many of them come from marginalized communities in their countries of origin, and so they become even uh, more marginalized, lacking power, lacking access to any kind of basic resources in the situation uh, of being a a refugee. One of the reasons that uh, gaining access to school is so important, especially for uh, young women and and girls, is because it actually is a form of protection. Um, You know, one of the things that uh, the research has shown that uh, when adolescent girls uh, are able to access education, they can protect themselves from you know various kinds of uh, trafficking and illegal ad- adoption, child marriage. So apart from obviously wanting the children and uh, the young girls to be able to learn, the fact that they're going to school protects them from many other a very difficult uh, and even more uh, undermining situations that they may face. How can governments and perhaps other stakeholders um, tackle you know, the diverse neglected needs of refugees? Are there any policy directions that they can perhaps focus on? Among many of the people that are displaced, they're not in refugee camps, but they uh, find safety in urban areas. And we actually don't even know uh, exactly how many of the refugees or those who have left their homes and been forcibly displaced are in urban areas and, and whether they're able to gain access to education. So there's a huge lack of basic information beyond the information we have about those in camps where the information is better. All of the vast majority of uh, forcibly displaced people in urban areas, we have almost no systematic information. Most of the attention in the West has been for refugees going to Europe, but uh, the vast majority of refugees are are being hosted in countries in the global south, in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East. So we need better information. We need uh, we need to make sure that we support the countries where the refugees are located with better resources. There needs to be much greater integration about the needs of refugees in the national education plans of the country. Many families end up continuing to be refugees for years. So even though it seems like it's an emergency situation, they should be able to return uh, back to their countries. Often and increasingly, it is the case that they end up remaining in this very difficult uh, displaced status for many, many years. That's Aaron Benavot, the director of the UNESCO Global Education Monitoring Report, on the line from Paris in France, talking there to Humuzo Mupulane. This is Africa Digest, bringing you the latest in the news on the continent, and it's now 17.30 Central African time. Let's get news headlines. Here's Onelin Zinzi.
The head of Egypt's forensic authority dismisses suggestions that the small size of the body parts retrieved since an Egypt airplane crashed last week indicated there was an explosion on board. Zimbabweans are urging the President Robert Mugabe, who's 92, to step down and celebrations of Africa Day to start this Wednesday. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilinsinsi. Thanks, Onile. 17.31 Central African time here on uh, Africa Digest. If you've just joined us, welcome to our show. We are Channel Africa. My name is Asanda Mazaunyani. Indigenous people living with HIV and AIDS, service providers, researchers and policymakers from all over the world will come together in Durban, South Africa from 16 to 17 July to celebrate, strategize and network on an indigenous-led response to the AIDS epidemic. The 6th International Indigenous AIDS Pre-Conference will take place ahead of the much-anticipated 21st International AIDS Conference scheduled to kickstart in the same city the same week. To talk to us more about this, we're joined on the line by Trevor Stratton, coordinator of the International Indigenous Working Group on HIV AIDS. Uh, good afternoon and welcome to Channel Africa, Trevor. Uh, good afternoon and thank you for inviting me. Thanks for making time to chat to us. Firstly, we'd like to know what is the idea behind this pre-conference and what does it hope to achieve? Well, this is uh, the sixth international pre-conference on indigenous uh, HIV and indigenous issues. And um, what we're uh, hoping to do in, in the context of Southern Africa is to bring together the, the narratives or the discussions around indigenous people and the narratives and discussions around HIV together. Because it, it, from all the research that we've been doing in South Africa with our partners, you know, the, the indigenous um, rights movement is, a, is, a, is a, um, a quiet voice. It's not very loud, but it's there, and it's been there for uh, um, many years. And then the HIV uh, dialogue and movement is very large and probably the most sophisticated and active in the world. And yet, those two narratives have never come together. They've never crossed paths. So what we hope to do is weave together these the stories of, of indigenous people and the stories of HIV and weave them together into a, a, a rich tapestry or, or a, you know, to, to create a container and hopefully stand by our indigenous brothers and sisters in the southern Africa region uh, while, they, um, while they begin an indigenous-led response to HIV. So that's what we're hoping for, really. That would be, that would be if that happened, it would be real magic. And speaking of an indigenous-led response, how would you define an indigenous-led response to HIV-AIDS? Well, uh, that's a very good question, because when we came into the region, we have, uh, you know, we're used to doing um, uh, work in in South America and in North America and in regions in Australia and New Zealand, etc., but we had never really uh, reached out in Southern Africa to understand what does indigenous really mean in Africa? And so uh, luckily our local uh, colleagues and partners turned us toward um, a, uh, an article called, uh, it, it's called Indigenous Peoples in Africa, The Forgotten Peoples, the African Commission's work on indigenous peoples in Africa. 
which basically talks about indigenous people such as the Khoi and San people um, uh, in the context of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, which brings together indigenous people from around the world to uh, discuss uh, their connection to the land and how uh, that uh, affects their health and, and what they have in common. While they celebrate the diversity of indigenous peoples all over the world, we also have uh, certain commonalities. So it was rather than bringing the international story to South Africa, we wanted to start where South African people are or people in Southern Africa uh, are in terms of indigenous people. So we needed to start with an African viewpoint of indigeneity, if you will, and we found that the, the African Commission's work um, um, on, this, uh, on this paper about indigenous peoples in Africa was the perfect place to start. Why is such a meeting important to indigenous people in terms of them specifically and not just looking at the international community and how they view them? Yeah, what we, what we find is that, um, you know, HIV tends to thrive where people do, don't have control over their own lives or their own policies that, uh, that, that govern their health, uh, their own health system. So uh, we're finding indigenous people tend to, be, tend to live very um, remote, in remote communities. They're sort of on the margins of society, so, and they're, they're not often part of the uh, central governing system in a country, so often their needs are, are not addressed because their voices are not part of the dialogue. And so that's hopefully what we would want to do is amplify the voice of the indigenous peoples in Africa uh, so that um, so that their messaging gets out, because what you know, just like with uh, people living with HIV, they say, you know, we don't want anything done about us without us, and it's the same with indigenous people. So the policies that um, that govern indigenous people's um, laws and health, uh, we're we're hoping that uh, indigenous people have more say over that, or they're able to contribute or have some autonomy over their. Their, their, their own health and their own access to medicines, etc. And how critical is this voice in the global fight against AIDS or in the global AIDS response? It is becoming more and more recognized. In, in HIV, there are certain populations um, where now we know where, where HIV tends to thrive, as I say, and, and that is in those groups, especially criminalized groups, or uh, again, group, groups that uh, don't have access to the, the, the sorts of uh, services that they, that they need. So internationally, for example, at uh, the, um, the, you know, the big AIDS conference, ours is a pre-conference to the big AIDS 2016, which will happen in Durban as well. And uh, we just, uh, as indigenous people, more and more we're recognized as one of those populations that's at greater risk for HIV. It seems that when, when we do, there's a lack of evidence because not a lot of research has been done with indigenous peoples in HIV. But where there has been research, it shows that uh, indigenous people are getting HIV at higher rates. And yet we seem to be invisible in, in the literature or in the research. So that's one of our biggest challenges is to, to develop that evidence, to show, to prove what we know is happening out there and that, that, that indigenous people are at higher risk because of their um, marginalization and because the, the lack of um, 
of 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 a, of a say over their of what happens in their lives. Yeah, thank you so much for for chatting to us. That's all the time we have for unfortunately, uh, Trevor. Thanks for for making time to chat to us on Africa Digest. Thanks very much for the opportunity to get the word out. All right, uh, that's uh, Trevor Stratton, who's the coordinator of the International Indigenous Working Group on HIV/AIDS. The Two Ocean Aquarium at the Victoria and Alfred Waterfront in Cape Town is set to release all the ragged tooth sharks from their current Ivan and Johnson Predator exhibit. Rene Leona, Assistant Communication and uh, Sustainability Manager at the Two Oceans Aquarium, says her organization is in preparation for the closing of the exhibit for repairs in mid-June and the long-awaited opening of the new large-scale exhibit. The Cherishons Aquarium was founded in 1995, so we're going on to 21 years. And over the years, we've actually become quite an education facility in the sense that we have two fully kitted out classrooms. We see about 50 to 52,000 school kids in a year. And our aim and our mission in this world is to educate people about the perils that our oceans are facing at this stage and how they can make a difference to the environment. And on top of that, we obviously also, where we can help, we do help, like our turtle rehabilitation program, the seal detanglement program. We have six environmental campaigns that we are actively promoting within the community. We're trying, we're working towards banning the plastic bags in South Africa, educating people about biodiversity. So it's all about the oceans and what people can do to look after the ocean. And then, obviously, when people come to the aquarium, they come and they come and see the animals that we have here. And, yeah, and through making a connection with those animals, we hope that they will then look after the ocean. What animals uh, do they come to see at the aquarium? So we house animals from both warm waters and cold waters that surround the southern African coast. You know, here in Cape Town, it's really cold water, 14, 13 degree water. And then in Natal, the water is lovely and warm and you have tropical fish up there. We house animals from both of those climates. And we also have penguins. Our African penguins are endemic. They are only found around our coast. And they're also endangered. And then we have some visitors from far afield, like the rock hopper penguins that are from the sub-Antarctic islands. Those are animals that cannot be sent back to their islands. They were tossed overboard by fishermen here in our waters. And if they go back with a disease, they might wipe out their whole colony. So they end up spending some time or living with us. We have one of a handful of kelp forests on display in the world. And yeah, which is truly unique and beautiful to Southern Africa. Wide variety. We have, even have a snake on display. We have some frogs, toads, western leopard toads that are an endangered species. Also animals that couldn't be released due to injury. And then we, up until yesterday, well, we're currently closing down one of our large exhibits. So we're releasing our sharks, but we also have ragged, or we have had ragged tooth sharks on display, yes. The release of these rugged tooth sharks. Yes. What would you say are the challenges of releasing the species okay. into the wild? 
the first thing that I need to emphasize is this is not our first release. We've been releasing our sharks since 2004. Our sharks do not stay with us indefinitely. So we collect our sharks ourselves. They stay with us for a couple of years, and then they are tagged and released. So these sharks that we are releasing in these two this week and next week, we had four sharks, four ragged tooth sharks in our INJ predator exhibit. And yesterday we removed two, and today they are being released in Mossel Bay. And the reason why we are removing our sharks and releasing them at this stage is because that exhibit will be closing down for renovations, and we can release our sharks. So we are releasing our sharks. So people should be looking forward to a much wider area for some of the species that you're having now. What we are doing is once that exhibit has closed down, we are actually opening a beautiful, 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 I'm very excited, a beautiful new exhibit, a 1.7 million liter exhibit called the Ocean Exhibit. And that exhibit will house animals that are found in slightly warmer waters, so turtles, we'll have some guitar sharks, some tuna, beautiful yellowfin tuna, bonito, some rays. And also that exhibit has a beautiful full tunnel. So when you walk through the tunnel, the water will be surrounding you. And the entrance to that new exhibit is a really, really, I find it incredibly mesmerizing, jelly hall. So we will have jellyfish, various jellyfish fish on on display in a very creative way. I think people will really enjoy that. You're talking about tortoises. Now, seeing that you have rescued some of the tortoises, what is the situation with some of the tortoises that you have rescued? So, sea turtles are generally not found in Cape Town waters. Cape Town waters are quite cold for a reptile, so they don't enjoy being in cold water. They're more tropical or temperate water animals. So, they actually occur in Natal. But every year we find, washed up on our beaches here around Cape Town, we find tiny little loggerhead turtles. Now, loggerheads nest on the coast of Northern Atoll. And basically what happens is these little hatchlings, they go out into the sea and they get caught up in the wrong currents and they get washed up in Cape Town. That's uh, Renee Lona, Assistant Communication and Sustainability Manager at the Two Oceans Aquarium, talking to Wandile Kalipa. 17.45, 17.45, just after now, here on uh, Africa Digest. Let's get economics news with Amanda Machak. Thank you, Asanda. Good evening. CEO of Toyota South Africa, Andrew Kirby, says investing in their workers over the years has made his company the leading employer of choice in South Africa's automotive sector. The Japanese car manufacturer launched a new plant for the production of Hilux and Fortuna in Durban earlier today. President Jacob Zuma and Ministers Rob Davis and Ibrahim Patel of Trade and Industry and Economic Development respectively attended the launch. The $400 million investment has created at least 4,000 jobs in the local economy. Kebu explains. We pride ourselves on our overall training ethos of a caring company, transformation in the workplace and development of a well-trained, integrated supply chain. We also place a significant focus through our Toyota Foundation activities on contributing and developing our surrounding communities. The biggest project in this area 
is our Toyota Teach program, which supports the development of school management, educators, and learners. And we're currently supporting 10 schools in KwaZulu-Natal, and to date have trained 1,818 educators and impacted on 220,317 learners. The acquisition of South Africa's furniture store, Ellerins, with an amount of $620 million, lack of independence by board members and relying on unsecured lending have been said to be the major contributing factors that collapsed the African bank. The Reserve Bank briefed Parliament's Finance Committee on the report by advocate J.F. Mayberg on his investigation into circumstances that led to the African bank being placed under curatorship. The opposition accused the Reserve Bank of being complicit to the collapse of the bank. Deputy Reserve Bank Governor Koben Naidu has admitted that they made mistakes but cannot be blamed for the collapse of African Bank. I am not saying that we did not make mistakes as the Reserve Bank. I think there were mistakes made. I think there were lessons learned. But as I think is pointed out in the Mayberg report, you cannot hold the Reserve Bank responsible for the failure of African Bank. The responsibility for the failure of African Bank cannot lie with the supervisors. There isn't any evidence or any sense that it was the supervisors' fault or mistakes that were made by the supervisors that directly led to the failure of African Bank. African Bank was a failure of governance, a failure of risk management, failure of imprudent accounting practices, a failure of hubris, and in some cases a failure of investors underestimating the risk in the bank. Loss-making Kenya Airways says preliminary results of a forensic audit had helped it identify weaknesses in its internal controls. It says it's taking action that includes disciplining some staff. The statement following the audit by Deloitte Consulting did not give details about the grounds of disciplinary action. The airline, part owned by Air France KLM, has been working on a turnaround plan after more than three years of financial losses. It said the audit aimed to help identify revenue losses and cash flow leakages. It said actions included disciplinary proceedings, which could lead to criminal prosecution. It also said staff would be suspended if necessary to complete investigations. The new diamond sales agreement between Namibia's DPS and the government has brought hope to local diamond manufacturers that they will now start receiving enough and good quality diamonds for cutting and polishing. The manufacturers appealed to the government to save them from collapse. At the end of last year, only four of 13 diamond processing plants were still operating. Lack of diamonds, quality and the price were some of the factors cited for causing the collapse of the factories. And finally, new U.S. single-family home sales surged to a more than eight-year high in April and prices hit a record high, offering further evidence of a pickup in economic growth that could allow the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates soon. The Commerce Department says new home sales jumped 16.6% to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 619,000 units, the highest level since January 2008. The percent increase was the largest since January 1992. March sales pace was revised up to 531,000 units from the previously reported 511,000 units. Economists had focused new home sales, which account for about 10.2% of the housing market, rising to only a 523,000 unit rate last month. 
For now for a quick look at your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 15.65 to the South African rand, at 10.96 to the Botswana pula and at 10.17 Zambian kwacha. On to commodities, gold is at $1,234 and platinum at $1,009 an ounce. And the price of print crude oil is at $48.99 a barrel. And that's how it's looking at the hour. Thank you, Amanda. Let's get sports news now. Here's Musibudi Makura. Thank you, Sunday Good Day Sports fans. And starting off with football news, the CAF Organising Committee for Interclubs Competitions at its meeting on Tuesday reviewed a complaint by Stadia Melen on the eligibility of a player, Idrissa Traore, used by AC Vita during the preliminary matches of the 2016 Orange CAF. Champions League. Traore played with the Malayan club during the 2015 season whilst featuring for Stadia Malayan. The camp disciplinary board handed him a four-match suspension. He served only one match and the remaining um, and the remaining with three matches suspension was carried over to the next competition in line with the CAF disciplinary code. However, AC Vita fielded him in the preliminary rounds of the 2016 Orange CAF Champions League against Mafunzo of Zimbabwe and as a result Vita Club was found to have contravened the competition's rules and the Committee for Interclubs Competitions decided to disqualify AC Vita from the Orange Calf Champions League and replaced it with South African club Mamelodi Sundowns, the last opponent of AC Vita before qualifying for the group stages. Meanwhile, the draw for the 2016 CAF Champions League group stages was conducted on Tuesday in Cairo, Egypt. Group A features Zesko of Zambia, Al-Akhli of Egypt, Esik Bimosa of Cote d'Ivoire, as well as Wydad Casablanca of Morocco. Group B comprises of Nyemba of Nigeria, Zamalek of Egypt, EST um, Satif of Algeria, as well as Sundowns of South Africa. The group stages kick off on the weekend of the 17th to the 19th of June. And still on football news, Cristiano Ronaldo has played down fears over his fitness ahead of Real Madrid's Champions League final against Atletico Madrid on Saturday. The three-time Ballon d'Or winner was forced to leave Real's training session on Tuesday, which was part of an open media day after competing for a ball uh, for the ball with reserve goalkeeper Keiko Casilla and collapsing to the ground. Several members of the Real Madrid's medical staff helped to pick the star up. Um, off the floor, um, off the ground, rather, and the Portugal international was able to hobble off the pitch unassisted. Not to cricket news, Standard Bank Proteas and Bezab um, Hartfeld Lions budding fast bowler like Achi Surabada says he can't wait to get the cricket ball rolling again ahead of an action-packed summer of, the, of cricket. Some South Africa departs for the West Indies later this week where they are scheduled to take on Australia and the West Indies in a triangular series starting in a fortnight. Rabada, who last featured for the Proteas at the ICC T20 World Cup, says he has worked hard off the field and now is looking forward to getting back into action. 
Yeah, they're going quite well. Recently, just done some skills work. I've been in the gym, uh, trying to get stronger, and I've been trying to better my game. So we'll see if it's any better uh, when I go to West Indies. I don't know if you've been to county yet or back. No, I'm only going on the 24th of June. This is going to be a, a great summer. I can't wait to start playing. It's going to be challenging because I'm going to be playing everywhere from the West Indies, Caribbean, and then back here at home. And then we're off to Australia. And Australia come here. So it's going to be very busy. Sri Lanka come here too. And then it's Dubai in 2017. I think early 2017. So I'm excited. Lots of traveling. Lots of quality cricket to be played. The Zion Sports News at the Sour Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Thank you, Musabudi. Let's recap our top stories from this hour of Africa Digest. Three people have died and dozens others injured following protests against Kenya's Electoral Commission. Africa has presented its common position on humanitarian issues at the World Humanitarian Summit in Turkey. That's how we wrap up this hour of Africa Digest. Thanks from me, Asanda Matsaunyane, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Revolino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team. Thank you so much for tuning in. For comments on our show, send us an email. Info at channelafrica.co.za is our address. You can also SMS plus 27796957930. Tweet us also at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour, here is Ungowami by Afro Traction.